Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a political analysis show where we take you deeper into this week's biggest stories. I'm Trey Orndorff, and I'm joined this week by Jay Carson. Hi, guys. I'm back. Yeah, it's kind of fun to be here with you again, Jay. I hope we're going to have a good time. I just wanted yeah. to take a minute, though, to, at the outset of the show, highlight Mike's new blog on food politics. Have you looked at that yet, Jay? I have. I have. Well, at least the, the beginning part. Well, today, the, like, century, like, yeah. we'll have to do it again, because today uh, he is putting up his next exciting new post, um, and he was asking if you would join him at politicsguys.com slash Mike. And I don't know about you, but it always makes me not want to eat food when I get done reading his or Kimberly's work. <laughs> that's not a that's not a very good very good promotion. No, well, I mean, <laughs> but it's interesting because they are always like finding these fascinating like. So you think that there's this kind of this neutral food gets to your table, and it's not, and then you constantly have to kind of carefully think like, am I am I going to eat that or not? But anyway, I mean that in a positive way. I really do, and I hope that everybody joins uh, Mike for his blog as he takes that on. Uh, and he's also he's sort of off this week because of some uh, technical difficulties uh, with his uh, his internet uh, being waterlogged, uh, as I understand. So, yeah, I mean it's it's Time Warner, and so they are not our sponsors, and so I can say you know <laughs> use anybody else. Uh, <laughs> so there you go for the, the not sponsors. Anybody who's not Time Warner, that's who your internet provider should be. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about this week, besides food politics and water in lines, is going to be the Senate's tax proposal. So we had, last week we were talking about the House Republicans' tax proposal, and this week the Senate put out their own proposal for tax cuts. But there are some major differences between these two bills, and so let me kind of run this down for our listeners about some of the differences here. Uh, okay. The first big one is individual tax rates. The Senate is going to propose to keep the seven tax brackets that we currently have, but with slightly lower percentages, especially at the top. The House bill, as we already noted last week, uh, simplifies the system to four. And the House version also eventually repeals the estate taxes for amounts over $5.5 million, while the Senate, while it will double that exemption, will never end the estate tax. So we've got some individual tax rate differences between the House and the Senate. We've also got some big deduction differences between in the House and the Senate bill. The Senate bill is going to keep most of the popular tax breaks and deductions, especially the loan deduction. In the House, as you recall, they're going to close a lot of those down. Uh, they're going to keep the loan deduction, but only up to $500,000. So homes over $500,000, or I should say, the portion of your home over $500,000 would not account for that. Finally, there's some big business differences. While both the House and the Senate uh, are cutting the tax rate for corporations to 20%, the Senate delays that cut for one year. As a matter of fact, the market took a pretty big hit uh, and fell yesterday on news that there was going to be a delay in that cut. Um, also, there is, he's, he hasn't said anything on Twitter yet, but Apparently, behind closed doors, Trump is furious that the Senate is also not knocking it down to 15%, which is what he initially wanted, but again, no public comment. Uh, so as the New York Times puts in, Jay, these bills differ significantly concerning tax breaks, tax rates, and implementation. So what do you think about these two? What's yeah, well, let's, let's take a, a couple things at a time. And 
you know, I think the 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 bigger picture, uh, at least for me, and and you know, you and I probably agree on a lot of this. There's there's two two pieces. One is the corporate tax reform. The other is the individual tax reform. Uh, I'm going to go go out on the limb and say the more important piece is the corporate tax reform. Not that I'm opposed to individual tax uh, tax reform or or lowering rates, uh, particularly simplifying the marginal rates. Uh, but I think from from an economic perspective, uh, if you want to juice growth, that's that's one of the biggest barriers that we've got is is our corporate tax rate is so much higher, uh, approximately thirty five percent compared to the rest of the uh, we'll call it the civilized world. Um, so twenty percent puts us again not at the lowest, but but the lower end, uh, and makes us more competitive. So uh, my my sense is that's the that's the the big win. Well, how what do you the feel Senate? then about the Senate, you know, delaying that for a year? Obviously, there's been some market response to that. Yeah, and I think I think you see that. And the the, the issue that uh, just just for listeners who don't think a whole lot about tax policy, and then you know, you probably shouldn't, I guess. But um, you know, what what happens is if you you delay uh, this for a year. Um, what our business is going to do. They're going to do nothing for a year. They're going to sort of hold still. They're not going to make those new investments, hire new workers, uh, pay workers more, uh, what, what, whatever. Um, uh, they're going to just sort of sit on the sidelines and wait till it becomes effective where they can start bringing uh, money and investment back in the U.S. So that's the problem. What, what the Senate did do is sort of a Band-Aid, and apparently the markets didn't really like it, um, would have allowed uh, 100% expensing of of uh, new investment um, up front in the first year, uh, which you I mean you could you could take everything off in that one year as opposed to um, amortizing it over five seven whatever. Um, <clears throat> that didn't seem to help a whole lot, uh, but but I think um, I, I think there's there's a a workable you know middle ground through this. Um, and especially after the Senate saw that the, the market response, I, I think they would. Uh, there's there's more that can be done. So I think we we get there on that. Um, you know, when when it comes to the the differences between the House plan and the Senate plan, I guess my first thought as a I don't know if you want to call me whatever working fiscal conservative, but um, you know, so much has been has been written and discussed. I, I think that that. Changing marginal tax rates, and that means simplifying the tax code, so that when um, you know, say you're you're at the the top of of one bracket, uh, and you get a raise, well, what happens is your taxes go up, and you don't really see the money from that raise. It it's, tends to get eaten up by taxes, and it's it's called bracket creep. And and the problem is what it it does. It sort of creates these, you know, every every bracket is sort of then a speed bump uh, to to prosperity um, of you're you're getting extra you're getting more money but not really um, so the the house plan I think is was did a did a good job in in simplifying that in in taking going from seven to four um, so I think it's a shame that the Senate isn't following suit on that um, that said you know the the importance isn't even it, it's the number of the brackets, but it's also the the difference between them, how big of a speed bump uh, it is, and and they've flattened those a little bit. Yeah, um, I was a little bit surprised that in the Senate version, you basically see the tax break almost entirely come at the at the top end of the deal, where the the House was clearly trying to kind of level it 
between everybody. I mean, I know they were targeting as a middle class tax guy. Yeah. Uh, but it seems like they were really trying to hit a little bit of everybody. The Senate seemed to take a different deal. And I was one. Well, the question. house, the house had the whole house provision also had this, what was called a bubble rate uh, at, at the top where, where you could get, um, you know, I think a lot of economists and well, me and I'm not an economist, but, um, you know, a lot of conservative commentators saw that as this isn't so much a tax revenue raising, uh, uh, piece, this, this bubble or rather it's a, um, it's sort of political protection to say, Hey, we're, we're sticking it to the, uh, the 1%, um, which in terms of, it may, may feel good. Uh, for some people, uh, and it may buy you a little bit of political cover. I don't think it buys you much political cover, so I don't think you d should do it. But, um, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really do much for for growth or for revenue. It's it's uh, more just a, a punitive sort of stick in the eye. And again, maybe a political play, well, I mean, which don't, I don't think. Works. I mean, again, I'm I'm going to take maybe a slightly different view because I mean I agree with you in the broad strokes philosophically, but I think a lot of this has to do with they can't make this deficit go huge. Right. Otherwise, gotta, they yeah, can't even, put, they yeah, need the special procedural rule in the Senate. So, I mean, I think part of that is an attempt to try to make this at least seemingly revenue neutral. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, I sort of prefer the, I don't know. You know, here's the thing. I think there's, there's good, there are good pieces in both. You know, for example, if, if, you, if you could get rid of the, the house's uh, bubble rate, uh, but you know, still go to uh, four uh, rather than seven. Uh, if you could, um, oh, what was the other uh, the other piece I was going to? Uh, state? Uh, yeah, state tax. Um, you know, again, I think that you know would it be great uh, philosophically to eliminate the estate tax? Absolutely. Uh, real world, as far as look, the middle class. Most of your average people listening to this, you're, they're not going to get uh, hit by the estate tax. And most of the people who have uh, the resources uh, have the money that they would get hit by the estate tax. Uh, there are ways uh, to to reduce that estate tax liability. I mean, um, it's true. you're talking over basically $11 million. Over the $10 million. Million. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're, you're talking, you know, you start with a, a basic, uh, in either house, you're, you're looking at a $10 million um, uh, deduction or, or uh, uh, you know, before your, before it kicks in. So, um, I, you know, I, I think those are, those are good. And if we say eliminate versus 10 million, well, to the average guy on the street, that's not going to make mu that much of a difference. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, what's kind of interesting. Now, see, and you're talking about being the Burkean conservative. I'm with you on this. The thing that yeah, I'm a libertarian, so we're going to maybe differ a little bit. I, I still am a little bit concerned about the amount of deficit spending that we're we're entering into, and that's yeah. not a knock on the tax proposals themselves, but it's this kind of unholy alliance that Michael and I talked about last week, where you have, you know, Democrats are willing to bend a little bit on tax cuts, Republicans are willing to bend on spending increases, and the two never kind of meet. When we're thinking about you know your monthly expenses as, as a right. um, as a rate, and so while I I really like I prefer the House version of this bill for a number of reasons, but be that as it may, either, both of them are kind of grappling with this problem of you know how do we keep this under one point five trillion, and that's a scary number. I mean, it should be yeah. a scary number. It is a scary number. Yeah.
No, I, well, you know, you and I can also talk about you know things like dynamic scoring and should it should there be dynamic scoring? I, I think there ought to be. Although, again, that's tough. It's it's very speculative. Um, and I think what what the the House and and uh, well, the Republicans in general are are working on uh, is the idea that listen, we haven't been able to fix spending for whatever reason, even when you have Republicans uh, holding every branch of government. Uh, and, and that's been true, I can tell you, at, at various state levels. Yes. yes. Uh, at, at Congress, it was true in um, uh, the 90s uh, uh, to some extent. I, I think uh, the Republican Congress held Clinton uh, a little um, feet to the fire a little bit more. Uh, and Clinton, I think, was a little bit more willing to compromise on on things. Uh, that ended up with with spending reductions, um, but I mean you you've just never ever ever seen it, and that's every time when you uh, Republicans take over and there's this screaming of of um, you know all these vital services are going to be cut, people are going to be thrown on the streets. Uh, no, I, government government always grows, uh, and I think the answer to that is if government is always going to grow, then growth always has to grow too. Uh, so that's that's what you do, and and making these changes to make us more competitive, especially in the corporate tax rate, uh, is what can give growth a kick. And look, economists can argue and Mike and I can argue and you and I can argue about, well, can we grow our way out of this deficit? Um, maybe we can, maybe we can't. Um, but I, I don't think you can tax your way out of the deficit either. So, um, well, I, I mean, think yeah, if we're talking broad, broader, broader perspective of, you know, why, why this and not spending cuts, I think, no, I mean, I agree with you. That's the reason we're not getting spending cuts because, because you have entrenched interests that come with those payouts. But the ultimate problem from my point of view, and, th and this is where, you know, I'm going to maybe show my libertarian stripes a little bit more strongly than I do in, in other areas is, is that I, I'm not convinced economically that you can, you can grow your way out of unlimited government growth. Uh, right. No, I, and I, and I, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, sort of what I just said, but, but, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And see, as a libertarian, when I, mean, I'm, I guess I'm, that's I'm sitting the here thing saying, but I, look, yeah, I, I, I mean, we said that in nineties, you're right. Like we said that in the nineties, we're going to say that again in the aughts. And then what's going to happen when my kids are, are facing a deficit uh, yeah. bill that is at such a level that they're either going to have to raise their taxes at significant levels, or they're going to have to, and they're not going to cut spending. I mean, so you're looking at huge down the line tax increases. So, I mean, unless you think that you can grow it so significantly year over year, you can outgrow the I would say, you know, I mean, here, I guess, I guess would be my, you know, the con conservative uh, long-term view is if you can create enough prosperity uh, and allow people to keep that prosperity and transfer it from family, you know, generation to generation. Um, the appetite for increased federal spending will decline. Uh, there won't be the sense of, well, I need these government benefits. I want these government benefits. What, you know, there, there will be, again, that's, again, you and I are pretty much on the, the same page on this. Yes. yes. Uh, is that, Look, you want people to take care of themselves, not the government to take care of people. Um, I think that's that's a better uh, result fiscally. It's a better result in terms of, uh, you know, individual liberty and freedom and not having to depend on uh, the government or who's in office to uh, to pay your bills. It's it's uh, um, 
you know, people should be able to have, have more of their own money and, and do more with their own. So I, I mean, I guess, look, you and I are on the same page with that. And, and, uh, regardless of what, what we say, um, uh, we're not going to cut spending right away. Um, no. so we, we will see, we will see what happens. And my, my prediction is I, I believe we get a deal. I think there's, there's enough momentum, so much momentum, uh, and there is a sense uh, from where, what our next topic is that I think the uh, GOP has to do something, uh, get something done. Um, and, and, you know, we will have some tax reform. It will be imperfect. Um, but, uh, isn't it always so. And, and on the political side, you're right. I mean, in, in, in that something that gets done has to be more than minor. Like it can't be, if it, if it's around the edges, it's not enough right. I, I, politically moving forward. And you're right, because the next thing we want to start talking about is the elections because this week Virginia, New Jersey, and Maine had some, some at least potentially uh, interesting elections. But before we turn to that, uh, we're going to turn to our sponsor for this week, which is ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for great talent for your business, but you're short on time, you don't have to slog through a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you it finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. With all that, it's no wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidate with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. So let's move over to Virginia, New Jersey, and Maine because, I mean, and lots of elections going on. There's lots of things to talk about. But one of the biggest ones, Jay, was definitely the Virginia gubernatorial race, which ends in a pretty sound defeat of Ed Galipsy to Ralph Northam, uh, 54 to 45%. Right. And we get some really interesting different takes on this. Uh, Trump critic and GOP strategist Mike Murphy argued that the problem was with two words, Donald Trump. He said, <laughs> quote, Donald Trump is an anchor for the GOP. We got that message in loud volume in Virginia. The canary in the coal mine didn't just pass out. Its head exploded. End quote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and others have been arguing CNN was beside itself because they have noted that they've lost that basically Republicans have lost everything. They've lost the culture war because <laughs> a transgender state lawmaker uh, was elected, Danica Rome, uh, 
the use of Confederacy symbols shows that Republicans are doomed, right? It's all over. As a matter of fact, like, as a matter, it's fascinating to me how and yet, happy and yet, CNN is. And yet, and we they still hold the, the most seats in uh, any in state legislatures in the uh, Little details like that. But, doesn't but matter, uh, Jay. This in, in, in but, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so here's kind of my question for you, Jay, and then I'm going to let you take over is so I am part of what I do is I'm a stats guy, right? Right. So here is my statistical question. This is my statistical question for listeners and for CNN if they're listening because your stats are horrible, by the way. We know they are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong. Like Fox News, you have your own problems, but like today we're we're going to bash on CNN a little bit. Uh, Virginia and North, uh, you know, New Jersey, Maine, are is that sample of human beings? Is that representative of the whole country? And while I'm not going to disagree that Republicans face some huge issues. I think it is more than wishful thinking to say that, oh, look, we, we, we have a sample from three states. Clearly, this signals the end of the Republican Party. Right. Well, and, and I would say to, to me, the only one of those elections that really is significant is Virginia. Uh, and it's significant, not necessarily for the result, but the margin of the result and sort of the measure to, to the extent that's a measure of intensity. Well, and some of the uh, locations it, that flipped in their intensity for yeah. different candidates continue. Yeah. Source. Um, so I, I think, you know, to my lesson, I, I think the, uh, the, the strategist you quoted is, is right. Um, but, but he's also wrong because the, the problem is the GOP can't live with Donald Trump and you can't live without him either. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my sense is a lot of these folks who are um, not establishment Republicans uh, did not. Uh, I mean, and, and, and it's, let, let's be clear, established Republicans, a lot of Republicans did turn out for Ed Gillespie. Uh, he got uh, the the greatest numerical, I think, vote of, uh, of any um, uh, GOP uh, gubernatorial candidate. Um, it's, it's, it's that the democratic intensity was that much higher. And that's a phenomenal point because one of the things that's interesting about this race, Jay, is the fact that what other year would an off year out of cycle election have generated this amount of turnout? Like this, this is, this is abnormal. I mean, I think that's something listeners need to recognize is, you know, in in a few years from now, I don't believe that you're going to get the same kind of coverage over uh, a Virginia gubernatorial race when it doesn't line up with any other races. Well, it, it, some, to some extent, there's also the issue of just, as you said, this is an off year. There wasn't much else going on. Um, you got 24-hour news cycle. You got to cover something. Um, and you have to, you know have commentators about that. But so I, I don't want to say that, that it's, it's, it's meaningless because it isn't. Um, uh, but we're, we're not in the, in the world where you could have a presidential candidate who could go in and campaign for, uh, a, a gubernatorial candidate and, and be helpful. Um, because, because the problem is that when a Trump would, would wade in to, uh, uh, to help someone like an Ed, Ed Gillespie who, again, to, 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 it's a little weird just to call Ed Gillespie the establishment candidate. I mean, again, 10, 15 years ago, you would have said he's the, the far right wing, uh, uh, you know, torch and pitchfork, uh, conservative. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, cause again, that to me, that's, we've talked about this a bazillion times. Trump's base isn't necessarily conservative. Uh, I mean, they may be conservative in a, in a cultural sense, 
um, but not in the the traditional, you know, like we like to say, Burkean, you know, sort right. of, you know, a small government, low taxes. It's it's more these 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 cultural things. Um, so you know, look, I I would say that they've got a well. The other the other piece I want to mention is though, uh, the Democrats had a good candidate. Um, in uh, in Northam and and uh, uh, he's really sort of a moderate Democrat and uh, not of the the Bernie Sanders stripe, um, which is not the type who are going to be nominated in a lot of these other races. So I think that was something something different too. I mean, there was a guy who he he uh, he flipped on sanctuary cities, um, uh, essentially adopting the Trump well, but although the, I would say the not not unreasonable uh, position that. Municipal governments ought to uh, aid the federal government uh, in law enforcement, um, but uh, so I that's that I think is something else too. Um, uh, he might have been he might have been uh, uh, not too far left to turn off swing voters. He could he could pull in some swing voters. He didn't come off as a uh, you know left wing ideologue of the of the Bernie Sanders Elizabeth Warren stripe, um, <clears throat> and and I think. The the Republican Party wasn't able to paint him as that sort of um, again Nancy Pelosi uh, 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 Sanders um, Warren party. So right. I, I whereas whereas they have been in uh, in other uh, these other elections. You know, and I think that you, you said that in this era of Trump, you have this kind of problem because how do you do it? And I think you're right because and this is a problem that I think will be more transcendent as we come into midterm elections, and that is. It's difficult to embrace Trump and be successful, and it's difficult to not embrace Trump and be right. successful. Well, and if you look at the the Alabama uh, primary, and we're going to talk about developments in Alabama in a minute, I think, but that was sort of the problem: is is Trump comes out and endorses uh, a strange who is the establishment candidate, and for establishment voters, that doesn't that doesn't get them anywhere. You know what I mean? Right. That, that if anything, that sort of diffuses any enthusiasm they, they sort of had. Um, and likewise, the, the, uh, farther, uh, more Trumpian, more Trumpian than Trump, uh, voters, um, went with, uh, Ray Moore. Um, so Roy Moore, um, uh, and I, it's one of those, his endorsement won't swing the, the moderate or establishment conservatives, and it won't necessarily uh, pull in these other, um, I, you know, we need we need to come up with a word because I, I, I don't want to say more conservative because that's not really right. And I don't even want to say most so- socially conservative because that's not really right. No, and I agree um, with you. I mean, when you and we've talked, like you said, we've talked about this on the show a lot. It's difficult labeling this at this juncture because in many ways, these voters, they're not. So I get tired of the argument that this is kind of the pinnacle of, cons- I'm not exactly a conservative, but this does not represent conservatism. I mean, take a look at the similarities between, say, this kind of Trumpian, if you will, position and Bernie Sanders, which was very, right. very similar, right? I, I guess, it's I mean, for, for lack trade. of a better word, I think we, you know, call them populists, I guess. Uh, and even there, I think that's inexact, but, but. We'll say that like the populist wing, I guess, of the Republican Party or the, the populist uh, voter bloc that will will vote Republican. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know that Trump necessarily controls them. He, he sort of tapped into them, uh, but I don't know that uh, he, he controls them. Yeah, and, and his 
he has not been able to grow whom he's reaching as president. Right. Yeah, yeah. he's got the he's got sort of a, 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 a base and that's it. And that's eroding uh, just because of uh, sort of the personal silliness. Yes, yes. Which, I mean, that's kind of an interesting segue to talk about Trump a little bit more because this week has marked Trump spending his time in Asia. And, and being less silly, generally. Yes, as a matter of fact, I mean, <laughs> he, broadly speaking, he has been on message. Uh, he has been tweeting a little bit less, uh, for those of us who cover that. And broadly speaking, he's kind of covered two major areas. He's been talking trade policy and he's been talking North Korea. On Wednesday, Trump gives a speech, which is widely lauded from both the left and the right, where he says, quote, it is our responsibility and our duty to confront this danger because the longer we wait, the greater the danger grows and the fewer the options become. Um, this morning, North Korea responded to that and said that Donald Trump is, quote, begging for nuclear war and continues to increase its rhetoric. I know we are all surprised. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Trump has also taken aim at trade policy on the trip, and he's told leaders in the region that the United States would never, ever again sign a regional-wide trade agreement. Uh, sad for this libertarian, but not a surprise. That's not, that's not, yeah, that's not great news. But yeah. <laughs> He's also today called out the WTO and had a quick, brief chat, although not a formal sit-down with Vladimir so what do you kind of think about Asia? I mean, and what do you think on these two areas, Jay? I mean, really, we've had a lot of this trade policy talk where I've been a little bit dis... I have continually been disheartened by Trump's trade policy position since before he's been president. This idea that we want to dismantle NAFTA, we want to you know, end the, the Pacific Agreement, yeah. that we want to not have free and open trade, which is basically what he says for the WTO. But at the same time, I have to say that his very measured response to North Korea reminds me a little bit of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, I, I look um, on the trade policy stuff. Uh, obviously, th this is something where you, me and Mike all agree. Yeah. And that is that. Um, uh, free trade is is in the end uh, a good for everyone, um, and these type of of multilateral agreements and and you can argue whether it's better to have a series of interlocking bilateral agreements uh, or, or 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 big you know multilateral agreements uh, like NAFTA like the uh, Pacific Pact like the WTO. Um, but those are all devices heading in one direction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, I think where there is, I don't think Trump would just go and tear these up like he likes to say. I think that is rhetoric for the base. Uh, uh, but I think the, the the difficulty often lies in the enforcement. Um, for example, all of these, um, you know, these agreements. When you when you talk about uh, there, there are uh, barriers or pr protections against uh, dumping, right. which is creating a, a product at a a intentionally below profit cost uh, simply to harm another market competitor. Uh, and, and that's, that's just not allowed under, under these, these uh, various agreements. And there are provisions and processes to call someone out on it. And um, you basically uh, go into a, a kind of an international arbitration. Arbitration sort of. Yeah. And, and Mike likes arbitration. So, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, uh, so you have the, these these options, but 
we don't always use them for a number of other reasons. And that's for various political reasons. And, you know, how big is the violation? How much do we want to? So I think, you know, in, in Trump's world, what we end up with is maybe more vigorous enforcement, maybe more pushback. Uh, on on things, maybe uh, better protection of intellectual property, uh, you know those sort of things. Because again, none of this is is new in that it's it's not supposed to be done already. It's just how uh, how vociferous are we uh, in pushing it back? Um, so I, to the next, I think I think there's there's something to be said there. If as far as tearing up the agreements, I think that would be an awful horrible idea. But no, I agree. I mean, especially when you're talking about things like inter, uh, intellectual property. This week, there's been some really interesting look at the the floodgates that an, that a Amazon marketplace and an eBay marketplace that allows for counterfeit goods has wreaked on small businesses in the United States. But that that doesn't seem to be me to be what Donald Trump's talking about. I think I think that he is making the older, more protectionist argument that. Ultimately, if you have these kinds of deals and you have things come in the United States, that they're going to put people out of work, and 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 you had even noted at the beginning, and I think this is something that where you know when you want to be but, honest, but he's about not this, really going to do anything about it. That's that's the thing is I don't think he's got the the political uh, juice to really to 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 do what he well he's, he says he, he would like to do. He's renegotiating NAFTA. Well, I, I don't know if he's renegotiating. He's he's trying. <laughs> sort of, you know, again, it's it's not a a a you know, um, and certainly any any uh, treaty uh, agreement that is uh, now what twenty five years old, um, does it make sense to look back and retweak and see what works and what doesn't? Sure. Um, so I, I don't think that's you know shocking. Um, and if he calls it renegotiating or if you call it just, you know, revisiting or taking a second look, um, I still don't think you're going to end up with any sort of um, non-NAFTA framework, if you know what I mean. Okay. Okay. I, I do understand what you're saying there. So you think that no matter his best intention on this, whatever it could be, he he can't extricate the United States in any meaningful way from regional trade agreements. I yeah, I think there would be so much pushback from from industry uh, here uh, and from uh, neighbors abroad, uh, from his own party. Uh, the Democrats certainly won't support him on any of it, um, and and I think even he knows, and I think people like Steve Munchen would would tell him, um, uh, uh, Larry Cohn would tell him, uh, this would be horrible for the economy. So I, I, again, I see him uh, negotiating around the edges and tweaking things and maybe up in the enforcement a little bit, um, uh, which is all good rhetoric for the base. Uh, but I, I don't see a fundamental change uh, in these, these arrangements. Well, I, and that is encouraging. I, maybe I'm being a little bit more pessimistic than you. I mean, so I agree. I think we, we agree in general strokes about what, what we like as, as trade policy. I think that I'm a little more pessimistic about the extent to which Trump would be willing to make some more radical changes. But, you know, the, the, I, I would like to be able to be as optimistic as you about that. <laughs> so I like that, that, that point of view, Jay. Um, so speaking of things in which there is, there's really been no optimism, and that has been the last few weeks uh, dealing with inappropriate sexual behavior and contact. This has been this has been more than a week of uh, bringing this out in the open. I mean, right. the beginning, as we we talked about a few weeks ago, 
you know, in Hollywood and now kind of expanding out from there. We got C.K. Lewis even this week coming up and saying, yeah, I, uh, I was masturbating in front of, of other performers. And in, I mean, there's, there's two sides to this. On, on the one hand, just in general, I have to say as a libertarian, I am happy that this <laughs> is becoming a more in the open, you know, and I think that people are willing to talk about it. But it's I wasn't also, sure where you're going with that whole libertarian bit. And oh, but, <laughs> but I'm also deeply disappointed that you know it's 2017, and, and as a matter of fact, I believe that Mike was writing about this on Facebook and Twitter. It is deeply depressing the level of clearly depravity that was occur- occurring uh, against women as just a normal course of business. Just, I think all of us who have this kind of view or, or recognize that these kinds of things happen. But when it all comes out in once, I think it's particularly kind of overwhelming. And the one that we're going to kind of talk about a little bit, Jay, or like to you know, bring it to you, is that this Thursday, the Washington Post detailed allegations against Roy Moore uh, having sexual contact with a 14-year-old when he was 32. Uh, it allegedly occurred in 1979 when he watched the 14-year-old when her mom was going in for a custody battle, and then he began to pick her up and have sexual contact with her. Three other women interviewed by the Post say Moore pursued them in similar ways when they were underage, but there never was a relationship or sexual misconduct. Uh, yesterday, on Friday, Moore went on the Hannity radio show and denied the allegations in totality. When asked if he dated any 16 to 18-year-olds, he answered, not generally, no, end quote. <laughs> and, you know, that... Well, I did say to 16 to 18-year-olds, while wow, he was in his 30s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not generally, no. I mean, that's a, that is a horrible, horrible answer. I, I, yeah. I want to talk to his press person and say, anybody who helped him say, not like that, no, not generally. The answer should have just been categorically no or not. He goes on to say that that would have, quote, been out of my customary behavior, end quote, which again, that's a really bizarre phrase to me. <laughs> and he agreed if he would have done it, that it, quote, would have been inappropriate, end quote. Um, but he denies knowing the accuser. So some from the GOP, and this has really got me a little upset, Jay, so I'm curious about your take on this, especially a lot of local people have argued that this is really just a ploy by Dems. And that even if he did it, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, you know, 14-year-olds, they, they are asking for it, basically, what a lot of <laughs> the local it's Alabama. GOPs are talking um, about. I, I, I'm kidding, Alabama. <laughs> yeah. um, Meanwhile, Mitt Romney has basically said, like, look, Moore, you're, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty, but you still need to step aside. So what do you right. think about all this? Right. No, I, I, I would say, uh, uh, I'll go out on a limb and say this is not helpful to his campaign. Um, so, <laughs> in the uh, understatement no, 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 of the I, politics I, guy's history here, here, here thing I'm, I'm a little bit different um on the the roy moore accusations than some of the others uh and 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 again i'm if if he did do it uh that's horrific and he ought to step down uh, step aside as soon as possible um is it unheard of for uh, uh, people to invent scandals and, and bring them out when someone's running for, for office? Uh, certainly not. Um, and what's a little weird about the, the Roy Moore thing is here's a guy who's been sort of front and center in a lot of controversy for a lot of years uh, and has been on the ballot a lot of times. And this is the first we're hearing of it. Um so that that I mean, again, my my instincts are just a little huh, uh, just just because that doesn't. It, to me, someone someone of this 
his stature, who has been on the ballot, who has been in the paper, who has been front and center so so often, um, you'd think this would have come up uh, before. That's not saying it didn't happen uh, or, or anything like that, um, but I think it's that that gives me pause. Let's put it that way. Um, but what do you uh, think about? And you know, I, I I was kind of laughing at it in part, but I do mean it seriously. Why not just the? I mean, if this is in fact a no, and he is I mean, in the Hollywood right. ones, oh, we've no, a lot of people say yes, yeah. right? If, like so, C.K. Lewis said, "Yeah, I've done creepy things." Here's why: Yes, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So he is in fact saying no, but why not just a categorical no? Yeah. Why this? It's really bizarre. I mean, again, being bizarre does not make you guilty, right? I mean, I've been around court. I've worked in courts enough <laughs> to to be able to tell you that. But why not just the categorical no? Why why all the rest of this window dressing? Yeah, I I don't know. Um, it could be bad bad press advice, just handling it badly. Uh, it, it could be, I, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it could be he's guilty and, and he's just sort of trying to minimize this. Um, the, the vagueness of allegations a lot of times when you say someone, well, they pursue them sexually. Well, that can be sort of, uh, interpreted different ways. Well, in this case, there's, oh, there's it's a little more detailed than that, but I, I right. did not with, go with into one, it on the, the air because we yeah. wouldn't have kids and, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, I guess, I guess, you know, typically the more specific the allegation, uh, the, the, uh, better the denial needs to be, you know? And in this case, it's very specific, right? Yeah. So Um, again, we're not mentioning it this, but yeah, it's, it's very specific. So I, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, if, if it were, if it were up to me, if I were the, the, uh, GOP chairman of Alabama, uh, I would try to get him out of the races immediately. Uh, of course, I think he probably tried to do that a couple weeks ago. Right. <laughs> um, right. And, uh, uh, Mr. Strange tried to do that uh, a couple weeks ago, but, so um, I mean, what do you think about, I mean, again, I don't want to seem callous. Obviously there, there's an issue here. There's a, to be discussed about uh, sexual misconduct. But on the political side, too, what do you think about this from the point of the GOP? I mean, you're right. You want, this, you want him to step down, but he's not stepping down. You can't. And this is something that might be worth thinking from the point of view of listeners. You know, the party can't force him to step down, right? There's even, right. even, if, even if the head of the GOP in Alabama said, like, look, this is, this is completely unacceptable. We're not going to support you're you. You're not our candidate. And yeah, you say, can't well, stop him from running. Yes, it's I too, am. I'm yeah. on the ballot. Yeah. That's too late. But this, following it in light of Virginia more broadly, is this an additional hit or hurt for the GOP in a way that's broader? No, I, I think this is I think this is more Roy more specific. Okay. You know, and I think I think it's if anything, it's maybe a lesson um, to establishment candidates. Uh, it, it is a a. a um, if you are uh, one of the uh, Bananistas uh, who is going to run all these these uh, candidates who are sort of oddballs, um, and and I'm not 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 trying to excuse uh, Moore's alleged behavior just by calling it oddball. I'm I'm using that in a, a more general sense um, uh, to, to cover a variety of behaviors. Um, I I think that's something that. Uh, should give establishment candidates maybe a little bit of, of, uh, 
um, hope in in primaries that look these these people who are on the the fringes uh, the fringe populace who are riding this wave a lot of times are not great candidates and if you dig and if you you know let's put it this way if if um, Luther Strange uh, had uh, known about this uh, this might be a completely different story right right I mean Strange wins the primary he's the establishment uh, candidate Republican in Alabama and uh, it's it's uh, he walks he walks right in it's a breeze. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's, I think a message maybe to, uh, if, if we're concerned about this, the, you know, primary fights of, of Bannon having candidates that would challenge, uh, uh, people in all these different races, I think you actually have to have a decent candidate and, uh, Roy Moore, who, are, who, uh, you know, is, is not <laughs> as, as, is a troubled candidate before this. Um, yes. so. So I, I think that's that's a message for conservative or for uh, establishment Republicans to sort of let's step up our game in in the primaries because when when you allow sort of these oddballs in uh, this is the situation you end up with you have a seat that should have been an absolute lock uh, and now it is it is you know turning into a disaster so and I think your message on that front is valid it is easy it is too easy when you get caught up in the day to day. Uh, tussle of politics to forget the historical returns to mean. You know, changes occur, but they occur slowly. And the idea that you're going to see some potentially, as you're saying, some more mainstream candidates lose doesn't mean that that's the siren call for more traditional conservatism right. yet. Right. So. Right. And we said this before too. In Alabama, there were there was a, a perfect sort of a perfect storm of you had more who was a, a well known. Uh, and had a following, had been elected, had a had a statewide organization. Uh, you had Luther Strange, who was rightly or wrongly uh, uh, tied to a disgraced governor. Um, all those kind of things factoring in. Um, so no, I, I think this is a. I, I you know will will um, Democrats try to paint this uh, as all conservatives are abusers. Um, well, they may, but there's, there's kind of a, it's the wrong environment for that to really happen. Yeah. And there, uh, there's, there's one, there's, let's put it this way. There's, there's also someone else who is accused of sexual impropriety. Um, who the, who's, whose name they don't want to keep bringing up. So (laughs) true, true. Well, I think that kind of wraps us up for this week. Uh, So I want to thank all of our listeners, as always, for joining us and remind you again to visit Mike's new food uh, politics blog at politicsguys.com slash Mike. I would also ask if you're interested, and it's very helpful, if you would visit politicsguys.com, you can donate to the show via Patreon there. I would also like to remember our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Politics Guy. This week, our executive producers are Michael Baranowski, Jared Carson, and Trey Orndorff. This week's episode is produced by Trey Orndorff.